when we make moral statements, when I say, you know, uh, I love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, murder is wrong, Nazis are evil. What I'm doing is is not speaking for God and not making reference to some objective moral principle in nature. What I'm doing is I'm I'm telling you who I am. Hello, the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, and guy who hasn't had a real haircut in over a year now. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to explain to you what coronavirus or quarantine are... But man, I have uh, not been to ye old salon in a long time. Um, and it's been a weird year of kind of staring into a mirror, trying to cut my own hair with a razor, a set of clippers. Anyway, I'm sure I'm not unique in that experience. I've, I've rocked kind of every style from totally bald to buzz cut to greaser to right now I'm trying to do kind of like a curly faux hawk thing. Uh, it's, you know, it's not great. Um, (laughs) the good news is I am a podcaster and not a YouTube star, so it does not matter what I look like for all, you know, I could have grown an extra nose or something. It would not make a difference here. Um, Anyway, so this season, we've done a lot of talking to people about their spiritual journeys, finding their way to religion, away from religion, uh, from one understanding of religion to another, um, which is just kind of the way things shook out. (laughs) It was just uh, who was willing and able to come on the show. And this episode is no different. Um, However, I am very excited about who I managed to land for this episode. Um, I spoke with Matt Ruff, um, the mildly famous author, who is now more famous than he's ever been, thanks to HBO, because he wrote the novel Lovecraft Country, uh, which HBO turned into a series. I'm sure you heard about it. Became a big hit in the fall, back in the fall for them, uh, was produced by Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams. But uh, yeah, I spoke with Matt about how he kind of was raised in the Lutheran church and fell away from it as he got older. It was a really interesting conversation, and he actually told me something I thought was really profound about... um, morality and language that uh, I hope you'll stick around for. It's at the very end of the conversation. And after the conversation's over, I hope you'll stick around for my uh, closing thoughts because I've got an announcement that you might want to hear. So I'll flip you over to Matt and I will see you on the other side. Matt, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Matt, of course, is the very famous author of many 
books you may have read, including Fool on the Hill, Set This House in Order, Bad Monkeys, and of course, Lovecraft Country, which is now a hit program from HBO. Um, currently, his latest novel is a cyberpunk book called 88 Names, which just dropped in a trade paperback. So you should check that out. He is also doing a podcast of his own with my good friend Blake Collier to promote it, also called 88 Names, um, which you should also check out. Um, did I leave anything out? Should I <laughs> add well, anything? I, I think you gave people enough that if I actually am interesting, they can then go and, and do more. And if I'm not, they can just ignore everything you just said. That's good. <laughs> Lovecraft Country, the, the show was, it was kind of a phenomenon when it was airing. Like I felt like almost everyone around me on social media was talking about it. So I'm still pinching myself over that too. <laughs> I mean, that was just quite an amazing thing after being a writer. I mean, I, I, I've been a published author for 35 years and now overnight I'm suddenly, you know, I, I wouldn't say famous really because I'm still not that well known, but it's, it's just nice to, for a little while at least, not to have to worry about things like health insurance and rent. So. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. When HBO puts their uh, muscle behind something, it, becomes an event typically it's uh, yeah it, it really was the show of last summer for them so and again that was just luck of timing so i was very pleased that, that that was able to work out the way it did and that you know they've got a really deep pool of talent drawn and they really did so that's that's been amazing and i i do i remember you saying uh on the 88 names podcast that you had originally um conceived of lovecraft country as a tv show right and then you just ended up writing the novel after you couldn't sell it to any network yeah so. many it was this was actually going back to 2007 now i had this unsuccessful but very productive meeting with uh, a couple of tv production people who are big fans of bad monkeys and they wanted me to you know pitch them ideas for original TV series. And they, they were very much like, oh, you know, edge, ed, the edgier, the better, anything you can come up with, I'm sure we'll love it. And I, you know, having dealt with enough people from Hollywood before I knew that, that my idea of what was edgy and, and groundbreaking would probably scare the crap out of them. But I, I figured <laughs> it's a crapshoot anyway. So if I'm going to play the lottery, let me play for good stakes. So I came up with ideas for shows that I thought would be good, even though I, I didn't think they could really make it on American television at that time. And, and mm -hmm. one of them was this X-Files type show set in the 1950s in Chicago. And instead of being about white FBI agents, it was going to be about uh, a black family who uh, ran a travel agency and published a fictional version of the Green Book called The Safe Negro Travel Guide. And it was going to be about them having weekly paranormal adventures, but also dealing with the, the day-to-day horrors of life in the Jim Crow era. And just sort of playing those two those two things off against each other. And um, the, the title was basically, I needed a thematic bridge between paranormal horror and racism. And I remembered H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, who was both an incredibly talented and influential horror writer, but also a vocal white supremacist. And so he yeah. became sort of the thematic spirit of the book. Um, and of course, there are Lovecraft fans who have still not forgiven me for this. They're like, this, this book isn't about Lovecraft. What, what's, this, <laughs> what's this story about Black people having adventures? That's not what Lovecraft's <laughs> about. So, but uh, it, it made sense to me as a sort of figure of speech in any case. And uh, yeah, so I, I couldn't get the, the TV folks initially interested in that, but 
I fell in love with the story and eventually figured out a way to make it work as a novel with the thought that, well, gosh, maybe this will be a, a proof of concept that this isn't a crazy idea. And uh, my timing was really good. The book came out in 2016, just as Jordan Peele was finishing Get Out and he was thinking about what he was going to do next. Mm -hmm. And God bless, somebody sent him a copy of the book and uh, he loved it and decided to put his weight behind it. And the success of Get Out kind of paved the way for the HBO series. So, and here I am. Very um, cool. Still not quite sure how that happened, but yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just hit the jackpot. Um, I've got something I've been meaning to ask you about this, actually. Um, and I don't know if you're comfortable answering this or not, but um, as someone who, you know, occasionally moves in like horror fiction circles, um, I have been... I've been hearing about the book Lovecraft Country for years, you know, and I, I think I first heard about it in 2016. I don't know when it came out. Was it 2008? Yeah, no, oh, it was 2016. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 2008 so, was when I was sort of 2007, 2008 when I first talking about it. So you might've, you might've heard about it then, but. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. 2016 was uh, when my one published horror novel uh, came out. So that's cool. Um yeah, when I, when I first heard about it, I was like, okay, so it's like cosmic horror, uh, but like the meets the black experience in America. I was, uh, I was actually really surprised when I found out it was written by a white guy. <laughs> do you, do you get that a lot? Or people, yeah, like, people does, read the book does, and then yes. they're surprised? Of, when of, they find course. Out <laughs> of course, this comes up quite a bit. And yeah. um, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this more when we talk about my, my life story, but basically sure. I, I just never bought the idea that you, you, you know, your ethnic background or your, you know, your cultural background to determine what you can write about. The whole point of writing stories for me is I, I like you get to use empathy and figure out, you know, lives mm -hmm. of people, get yourself into the heads of people who have very different worldviews from you and, and very different ways of looking at things. And, you know, I understand why this in particular is a fraught subject because historically the, the track record of white authors trying to speak to the black experience is not very good. Sure. But my explanation for that is not that, you know, white people are incapable of understanding, you know, the black experience. It's just in many cases, they don't care to, they don't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the same way that there are a lot of men who just aren't really that interested in what women <laughs> are like in, in, yeah. you know, as far as their mental space. And, so, and if you don't care, then you're not going to be able to do a very good job. And, you know, and, and the, there used to be a time not long ago when people who were bored by a subject, you know, with like, ah, black people don't interest me. They would just say that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we have evolved to a point where, you know, better than to say that out loud, but there are still people who feel <laughs> that way. And to the extent that they embrace diversity, they're doing it because they're, they're worried about being, you know, accused of something if they don't have at least a nod to diversity in their novels. But again, if you're just including black characters in your book, because you, you don't want to get, you know, you want to check that diversity box before you can move <laughs> on to the stuff you're really interested in writing about, of course, it's, it's not going to be interesting or good. So yeah. I understood writing the book that I would be, as far as black audiences were concerned, I would probably be playing to a tough crowd, um, mm -hmm, but I'm okay mm -hmm. with that. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, my mother was my original tough crowd when I was growing up and having <laughs> gotten by that I'm tough crowds can be won over and it's very satisfying to do that. And the discipline required to do it where you, you can't get lazy. You've actually got to think this through it. I think ends up creating a better book. Then there's this other group, which I, I think consists largely of really white progressive liberals who mean well, who identify themselves as sort of, you know, anti-racist allies, but 
they've glommed onto this idea that the, the way for white authors to show respect for black culture is by treating it as a taboo subject, like mm -hmm, only mm -hmm. either not getting deep into it or don't presume that you know what that's like. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think the whole point of, of you know, anti-racism, of fighting racism, of trying to bring people together is that you have to take a risk and try to understand folks, even if you know you're not going to do it perfectly, even if you know you're going to miss stuff, Mm -hmm. you can understand people who are very different from you. And it's important that you try to do that. And, um, and I certainly think you can understand people well enough to tell a good story and, and mm -hmm. maybe learn something in the process. But so those are the, the two groups of skepticism that I deal with. And um, I've, I've been very happy that for the most part, like black readers I've encountered. Yeah. Sometimes they've admitted to me, they were skeptical before they started reading or surprised if, you know, they didn't look at my author photo until they were done. But in general, it's been pretty positive. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in part because, you know, I've got the, the Jordan Peele seal of approval, um, <laughs> that kind of blunts criticism I might otherwise get from uh, that sort of cultural appropriation, you know, sure. anti-racist ally crowd who might otherwise want to say, well, hey, no, you're, you're not supposed to be doing this. So, um, <laughs> and again, I, I mean, again, as we talk about my background, I'm just, I'm not one to worry too much about offending that particular kind of sensibility because I've, I've dealt with it. So, um, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if someone had handed me the book and, you know, not told me anything about the author, I absolutely would have believed that uh, the author was black. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what it means that I said that, but um, no, it's, it felt like it was coming from a very, authentic place, like a, a, an understanding of what the mid 20th century black experience was. Um, and I'm far from an expert on that, obviously, as, <laughs> you know, a mid 30s white guy in my mid 30s, but um, I would have I would have believed it. Um, I uh, there, there's a, a description of like the Tulsa riot midway through the book that I just I thought was one of the most chilling things I'd ever read. Um, so I thought that was, you know, just a really excellent exercise in uh, empathy, I guess, is what I'm, the word well, I'm looking yeah, for. That's sort of the central question of the book is like, which is the greater horror, the thing under the bed or, you know, the white policeman waiting by the roadside to, you know, ask you what you're doing here after dark. And that was never really a big question for me because as I got more into the history and yes, Tulsa is a mm -hmm. perfect example of that. And I mean, what what's really striking to me about the Tulsa massacre is that that you know it wasn't unique. There were mm -hmm. there was this period in in the you know starting around the 1890s and going through the middle of the 20th century when really there was this sort of quiet uh, you know campaign of ethnic cleansing where black folks were driven out of thousands of small towns and cities and and uh, you know there's a reason why you there are whole states and whole regions where you just don't expect to encounter anybody who isn't white. And it's because the mm -hmm. people were driven out and Tulsa is unusual in that we, we actually remember it. There were a lot of cases where stuff like this happened because there were no, there was nobody left to tell the story or nobody left who wanted to tell the story that it was just paved over and, and forgotten. And well, I feel like the Tulsa riot is something almost everybody talks about now, <laughs> you know, um, thanks to Lovecraft country and I guess Watchmen like stuff there it's been popping up. And I, I guess, I guess we're at a, we had a big, uh, what do you call it? 
this this year is the like the hundredth anniversary, right? Yeah, the centennial is so coming up. It right, feels so- like there's a lot of people talking about it now, but I like I lived in Tulsa for seven, eight years before I ever like the whole time I was in Tulsa, I was like, there's this weird pall of like racial tension over this town, and I don't know why. And then I I, I finally learned about it and I was like, oh. <laughs> nobody talks about that you know yeah no um, that was there was a complete you know amnesia at least in the in in the history books and the white press and it was not marked in you know nobody nobody did the the fifth anniversary uh mm-hmm. retrospective in the in the white tulsa press so yeah and of course now it's like everybody everybody who was responsible is dead and mm-hmm. I think the last of the survivors is either either it may have died recently or will is is very old. So it's like the the talk of reparations is sort of like there's nobody to to pay reparations to anymore right. either. So right. now we can sort of start to talk we, about. We it. can acknowledge it happened, man. That's depressing to think about, but yeah, I gosh, Oklahoma history is a big thing in, in uh, Oklahoma public schools, and I I know they they do a unit on like the Trail of Tears, but they don't, you know, they barely acknowledge uh, what that, you know, how they talk about the land run, but they don't really talk about how that connected to the Trail of yeah. Tears, and you know, they, I I don't think they acknowledge the the Tulsa riot at all. I, I, I guess that's what it is. It's just, you have to wait until everybody involved was dead before you can talk about stuff like that, uh, which is. Well, that's the strategy of people in power is like, if you can't be yeah. completely delay and delay and delay until the idea of like the same thing with slave reparations, it just, mm-hmm. you know, it would make sense and it, it would be just, but it's very easy to frame it as like, you, you really want to deal with so that was like you know that was more than 100 years ago now you really want to you know that, that's ridiculous to think of paying people for that nobody involved is alive anymore and it's a very mm-hmm. easy way it's just yes if you can delay paying a debt long enough then you can start to make the argument well it doesn't matter anymore and it's yes it's very frustrating and very aggravating and just the the trick is to not not buy into that so easily and say, well, no, but there's still good reasons why we might want to make this right and, and try and correct it, even if we can't do so perfectly. But um, anyway, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a whole other show. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably not the best person <laughs> to talk about that, but yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, now that we've um, dived deep into politics, should we talk about religion? <laughs> sure. <laughs> why not? That's what we, that's what we do on this show. We poke at sleeping bears. Um, so yeah, you um, said you'd uh, be happy to come on the show and talk about your uh, loss of faith, I guess. Um, and I guess it's more of an, you know, yeah, it, it, it was more of a, an evolution of who I thought I was going to be when I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And so to, to start talking about this, I first kind of have to tell you a little bit about my family history. Um, my um both branches of my family, the Ruffs and the Landbauers, came from Germany. Um, both came to the U.S. at about the same time, the middle of the 1800s. Um, um, but where the Ruffs came and settled in the Midwest and stayed, um, my mother's people, the Landbauers, um, after having spent the previous two centuries working as linen weavers in the <laughs> town of Ettingen um, in uh, in Germany, they. Uh, they had developed wanderlust, so they kind of kept moving. Um, 
My grandfather, Albert Landbauer, was a missionary from uh, Hannibal, Missouri. He was born in 1891. Um, after he got out of the, the seminary, he was sent on mission to southern Brazil, uh, to the Guarani region. And um, there was a colony of German woodworkers there who had come to Brazil by way of uh, Russia. These were these were people who had been, you know, initially invited by Catherine de Grey to come settle in the Volga region in Russia. And um, part of the deal there was that, you know, you, they wouldn't have to serve in the military. And um, as the political situation changed and, you know, they decided, gosh, maybe we don't want to live in Russia anymore. Let's let's move to South America. And so, so you had this colony of Germans, ethnic Germans, who were nominally Lutheran, but were really unchurched and... Uh, the Baptists were starting to move in on them. So the Lutheran church <laughs> sent my grandfather in to save them from the perdition of baptism. Um, and so that's interesting. That's actually kind of interesting to me that in South America, what they had to worry about was Baptists and not Catholics. <laughs> I, I have never, I have never fully tracked down the, how that worked, but um, yeah, that was apparently the thing was that the Baptists were the Baptists and just general heathenism, as he referred to it, were the things to worry about. And so he had a, you know, he had a missionary, I guess it was about 200 square miles of, you know, subtropical forest jungle. And uh, he would ride a circuit on these unpaved bridle paths. And uh, initially he rode horses. Um, the terrain kept killing them. So he switched to mules, which were, you know, meaner and slower, but they, they tended to survive better. And so, you know, you'd be riding along like a mile an hour through these muddy roads and sometimes 20 hours at a stretch. So often riding in total darkness with maybe, you know, if he was lucky, there'd be a lightning storm. So he might get a flash of lightning before a, a low hanging branch would knock him out of the saddle. Um, and that was his life. And, you know, for some reason, he, he could not convince any of the women he had known in Missouri to come join him down here in paradise. Um, so he ended up marrying one of the, the locals, a, a, a German emigre from Russia named Helena Preby. And um, my grandmother was uh, like my mother. She had this gift of languages. So she, she could read the Bible in most of the original languages. She'd memorize the catechism. She was very good at arguing theology. And I, I think she and my grandfather had a pretty stormy marriage in a lot of ways, but um, they managed to have eight kids together. Nonetheless, uh, my mother was the youngest of three daughters. She was born in that region of Southern Brazil. And then when she was still fairly young, they relocated to the Argentine jungle. <laughs> so mom grew up there in Argentina in the era of Juan Perón. And eventually in her early twenties, migrated to the United States and uh, landed in New York City and uh, you know worked at the Schroeder Bank. And then later as a translator and a secretary for the Lutheran Federation. and. Uh, she met and married my dad there. Um, now the roughs were um, dairy farmers in the Midwest, um, in Port Huron, Michigan, where my dad was born. They had the, the rough creamery. So rough ice cream, if you're, in a if you're time traveling in Michigan in the early 20th century, <laughs> you could pick up some really good rough ice cream while you're there. And um, I think that the family was fairly well-to-do and they, they used their money to build churches. So they built... Uh, Trinity Lutheran Church in Port Huron, and I think a couple of other churches in Illinois that were the first Lutheran churches in that region to conduct services in English rather than German. Um, I feel like, I feel like I need to interrupt you because I sure. swear you're saying I, I think it's Huron, H-U-R-O-N. Oh, I always, got it, got I always, it. <laughs> I always I always pronounce it Port Huron. That's I think that's 
that's me being a New Yorker. There you go. Um, um, but um, yeah, so my my dad, <laughs> my dad basically um, went into the ministry, uh, became a pastor in Peoria. Uh, he was married and had three kids there, and uh, the first marriage broke up. Um, and he came east and became a hospital chaplain, and that was that was what he was doing when he met mom. And uh, they had me, and we uh, lived in a row house in Queens that was owned by the synod, so that was part of his compensation. Uh, mm -hmm. And that house became the sort of basically Ellis Island for uh, all the South American relatives coming up to the <laughs> United States. So we were never entirely alone, um, and. One of one of you know my grandmother my, my grandfather had died my grandfather Albert Landbauer had died before I was born but my uh, grandma was still around um, she had left the Lutheran Church there had been a scandal with uh, another pastor who was apparently keeping some of the young girls after confirmation class and so she was this big scandal and so grandma left the church uh, eventually converted to Mormonism um, and. Um, and one of my, my mother's brothers also converted to Mormonism. So there's this Mormon <laughs> branch of the family. And, um, but anyway, grandma came up and she ended up living with us and um, she got the basement, which sounds terrible, but um, she just liked having her own domains. So it was like a mother-in-law apartment that would occasionally flood because this was Queens. And so <laughs> the infrastructure was not great, but you know, she had her own little domain down there. Uh, and it became a thing when the other relatives arrived, the first thing they did, they'd come in, they put down their, their suitcases and, you know, grab a Bible and go downstairs and try and save grandma from this Mormon heresy, which as if you, you could get her to change her mind, this woman who <laughs> had been arguing theology since, you know, yeah. Um, so this was the environment I grew up in, and it was like this mini multicultural theological debate society. And my parents temperamentally were quite different. Um, when I tell when I, when I told people that my dad was a minister or, or a hospital chaplain, they naturally assumed that he was very strict. And in fact, mm -hmm. I had to explain, no, that's that's the other parent. Um, dad was really more of a counselor. His job was to you know listen to people, uh, give them comfort, give them advice, and. Of course, in a hospital setting, you're not the you know Missouri Synod Lutheran on call. You're the Protestant on call, and you cannot afford to be hung up on, you know, how many sacraments are there and stuff like that. <laughs> you just you've got to be open-minded and you've got to be a good listener. And he was. And um, it was Mom who had the missionary zeal to you know, yes, I'm going to come into your country and your home uninvited and tell you what you're doing wrong, and you know, and I will I will make you change your mind and. So she was the moral enforcer in the household and, you know, she was quite good at that. And um, where this sometimes became an issue for me was that mom also loved argument for its own sake, like <laughs> all the other South American relatives. So sometimes, you know, if, if I hadn't done anything wrong, she'd just find something to have a, a fight about anyway. <laughs> and when I was young, I wasn't always very good at telling like, when am I dealing with a, you know, an issue of rules and when am I just dealing with the mood? And it was actually quite confusing where sometimes we'd have this very pitched argument over something and I was taking it seriously. And then a couple of days later, it would come up again. It was clear like, oh, she'd forgotten all about that because it wasn't. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that was that was sort of a thing. But at the same time, I mean, she was 
she was definitely the parent you would call if you got in trouble. You know, if I, I never, I was never arrested, but if I ever had been, I would use my one phone call to call my mother because mm. she would be there ready to blow the back off the jail to get me out. And, you know, <laughs> having saved me, then I'd better hope it wasn't my fault because then I was going to get an earful too. But that, that was the point. So, so, and she was also very, very supportive early on of my, my writing career. Um, I mm. think, you know, like, like her mother, she was a very bright woman. She spoke four languages fluently, you know, uh, English, German, Portuguese, and Spanish. She could get along in a half dozen others. But she'd grown up in Argentina where women were not encouraged to seek higher education. So she didn't have a college degree. I mean, she could certainly have gotten one if, if that had been an option. Um, and she also had never quite figured out what she really wanted to do with her life. So she was very restless and... Uh, you know, always trying to figure out, you know, what do I really want? She was always in motion. She'd love to go for long drives, you know, um, we went through this thing where she kind of collected real estate where, you know, my folks bought a, a house in the Poconos for, you know, weekends. And then the mortgage was cooling on that. And then she bought another house out on Long Island that eventually went to the South American relatives. And she and my dad had just bought yet another house down in Georgia where they were going to retire when she died. Um, so as someone who'd never found her niche in life, you know, I, I think when she realized that from a very early age, I knew that I wanted to, to be a writer and tell stories, you know, she was, she was just so happy that I knew what I wanted to do and she was going to support that any way she could. So she, you know, any books I wanted, any office supplies I wanted, you know, she'd get them for me. And then, you know, when I was a little bit older, she got me an IBM selector typewriter, which was sort of the, that was like the the pinnacle of typewriter design before they were replaced by word processors. <laughs> and uh, my aunt Flora, who was living with us at the time, taught me how to touch type. And so, you know, mom was just very supportive. And and uh, mm -hmm. uh, she was also my first literary critic. And again, you know, we, <laughs> I I learned how to stick to my guns talking to her. And once I once I'd been through through sort of debating literary merit with mom. Uh, <laughs> critics who I'm not related to strangers on the internet. That's just not really a problem. I'm like, I'm sorry, yeah. you, you guys don't know how to make me worry about what you think. Um, <laughs> Dad's role, you know, it's for my father. We were not as close um, when I was growing up, but, you know, we got closer after mom died. Um, there was a period of about four years before he died as well, when he and I got much closer and I learned a lot of stuff about their marriage that I hadn't known before. But even as a kid, what I what I got from him was sort of a, a sense of how to understand people. Like I picked up that that sort of and temperamentally, he and I were a lot more alike. I think I I, mm. I like arguing for its own sake, but I'm just <laughs> I'm just not as good as committing to it as my mother was. <laughs> um, so I really ultimately I just find I I prefer to understand people and make sense of them. And and dad. You know, he was very good. He rather than come at you directly, he would listen to you talk and let you wait until you ran out of steam. And then he would just sort of very briefly point out the thing that you had overlooked or the thing that, you know, sometimes he'd just ask a question and he had, a, he had a knack for asking these questions that you didn't have an answer to right away or you thought you did, but then it would stay with you. And maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years later, you'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. He had a point there. That was what he was trying to tell me. And I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I get it now. And, um, and uh, you know, 
we would also watch television and movies together. And, and he was very good at analyzing story structure and, and, you know, like pointing out, well, it sounds like they were trying to make this point in this movie, but, you know, they were actually without realizing it, making the opposite point. Here's why I think that. And so I learned a lot from him too, about how to analyze the stories and character development and how to make characters realistic. And just that question of, you know, after you get done being affronted by, you know, someone having a different opinion than you, the kind that a missionary would want to go in there and correct, <laughs> just ask yourself why, how they came to that conclusion. Why do these people mm. think that way? And, and that can often teach you something that'll help you, you know, mm -hmm. deal with them better. So, you know, I, I grew up in this, in this house and the expectation was that I would, you know, I, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. I'm sure they expected I would, you know, remain a, a member in good standing in the faith. Mm -hmm. um, but by the time I was a teenager, I was beginning to have difficulty. And, and I think there are, there are two basic issues that led to me becoming an apostate. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first was just, a, a, I think, a general outgrowth over being a professional storyteller and also being a minister side of uh, being somewhat skeptical of magic and the supernatural, which is that, mm. like, I remember being very conscious when I was young of just being amazed at the way people reacted to my dad when he was wearing his clerical uniform with the collar hmm. and everything. They would they would react to him not as a man, but almost as a you know a physical manifestation of God on earth. And they would get mm -hmm. very deferential, like, oh, sorry, Reverend, I didn't mean to curse him <laughs> in front of you. And uh, of course, I'd seen my dad in his underwear, you know, so I... <laughs> I loved him dearly. I thought he was a good guy, but this was just, it was just like, these people aren't reacting to him. They're reacting to a notion of him. Mm -hmm. And um, likewise in storytelling, I, you know, the whole thing that I do, I'm, I'm creating these figments of my imagination, these people who don't really exist and these events that never happened and convincing you to believe in them as if they are real. And, and, you know, the way I do that is by believing in them myself, at least while I'm writing mm -hmm. So I, I became aware at an early age of how easy it is to convince yourself of something that, that you know, and believe in something that isn't really true, uh, that sure. that is just a, that, that ability to suspend disbelief. And that, I think, inclined me to a certain skepticism towards things, that it's not that I don't believe magic could exist or that there could be supernatural things. It's just that I know that simply believing them, believing strongly in them doesn't mean anything in terms sure. of whether they are or aren't. And mm -hmm. People are often surprised about this too when they read my books because almost all of my books have some sort of fantastic element and I like to write about conspiracy theories. And sometimes I'll get somebody <laughs> like, oh, you, are you really big into conspiracy theories? And I'm like, well, they fascinate me from a dramatic perspective, but you know, no, <laughs> the, the fact that I can sit down and draw connections between things I know aren't related and come up with this you know, complicated story that feels really true inclines me to, to question, you know, when I encounter one in, in the wild. Um, and it's not that like, if I, you know, if I saw, if I encountered an actual ghost, I wouldn't reject it out of hand. It's mm -hmm. not that kind of unthinking skepticism. It's more that, you know, if I hear things going bump in the night, it might be really cool to believe there's a ghost there, but I'm guessing <laughs> there might be a more reasonable explanation. So that was part of it. But the other issue mm -hmm. was just that even within my own family, you know, there, there are these, big religious schisms. And the thing about religions like Lutheranism that are based around a, a model of salvation is that they are inevitably exclusionary, that there's the mm -hmm. saved and then there's everybody else. And mm -hmm. 
of course, it's, you know, it's an evangelical religion where you want to go out and save as many people as you can, but it's a given that not everyone will be saved and that some people are going to go to hell when they die. And it's not that that couldn't be true, but it, it needs to make sense. And the problem I had is even in my own family, you know, the, the relatives going downstairs to try and convert my grandmother, they weren't just <laughs> doing that for funsies. They, they actually believed that, you know, mm -hmm. Mormonism was this heretical belief system that, you know, God had no patience with, and that if they didn't change her mind, she was going to suffer a term of torment when she died. And of course, I'm also living in New York city in the, uh, you know, 1970s in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement. And at a time when, um, Secular culture, you know, they were trying very hard to sort of teach kids the, the important lessons of the Holocaust and World War II. So, you know, even my parochial grade school that I attended from third to eighth grade, Our Savior Lutheran, you know, in history class, there was a big thing about, yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler was this evil guy and took Jewish people and put them into ovens. So we get that lesson in history class, but then, you know, it's Wednesday, time to go to chapel. And, you know, what we're learning in chapel is, well, God takes the Jews out of the ovens and casts them into a lake of eternal fire, along with all the other <laughs> unbelievers as a punishment for denying Christ. And, you know, God mm. is the definition of goodness. And I'm like, well, yeah, there, something doesn't connect here. But, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, is it good to set Jews on fire or wrong to say, you know, well, like, what, what is the rule? And then, of course, I'm not in history class or in chapel. I'm hanging out with my friends, David Weber and Steve Bernstein, who are Jewish, and they're mm. Jewish for the exact same reason I'm Lutheran, because that was what their parents were. So, and, you know, this was the other thing when I went to confirmation class, I was the only kid asking questions. Like most people, they go to confirmation <laughs> class, it's just like, oh, I'm bored. How do I get through this? How do I get confirmed with... Matt, stop asking the pastor questions. We just want to get out of here and go do our stuff. And so it, it just... There were people who would step outside their birth religion, but it didn't seem to be an urgent thing for most people. Most people just believed what they had grown up with, at least when they were young. And the idea mm. that that salvation hinged on what was essentially a birth lottery seemed wrong to me. It seemed to me <laughs> that... Um, you know, this this was the kind of thing that human beings would come up with who wanted to have a sort of in-group and an out-group, but not necessarily something that a loving God would come up with who loved all of his children equally. So hmm. that really became the, the thing I couldn't swallow and I couldn't live with and mm -hmm. eventually just caused me to stop believing. Um, and I, I would say that I probably stopped believing in hell first, but that does create this issue where if, you know, if hell is not real, if there is no eternal damnation, if you believe, you know, just everybody is saved when they die, then you it sort of undercuts the central mystery of Christianity, because then you suddenly have to ask, well, then what was Jesus sacrificed for? And there mm -hmm. are more liberal answers you can give to that question of, you know, well, it's just a symbol of God's love for us, even if, you know, God is willing to, willing to love the Baptists too. <laughs> But the problem is at that point, if, if, it's, if it's just a story, you know, even a really beautiful story, I, I kind of felt like I had the storytelling aspect of my life covered. I didn't need to get up early on Sunday and go into church and, you know, listen to a sermon that I probably want to argue with. It was easier to just, you know, <laughs> I'll go my way and, and you guys go your way. And um, 
So, you know, that's, that's basically how the change came about. And then the, 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 the final question is, well, how do I tell my parents this? And particularly, how do I break mm-hmm. this to my mother? And this was, turned out to be a very useful moment in my writing career because I'd you know, been trying to teach myself to tell stories since the time I was five. And I had always been drawn to long fiction long form fiction. And, you know, my early attempts were more like meandering soap operas that didn't really have a point (laughs) where I just start writing a story and go on until I got bored. But I was sort of getting to the point where it was time to write more structured things, novels with a beginning, middle and end. And um, so what, what ultimately ended up happening is I I wrote this novel called the, the gospel according to St. Thomas, which was this sort of semi-autobiographical story about a, a Lutheran minister's son losing his faith. And mm-hmm. it would become a way of letting my mom and, and my dad know, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite what you'd hoped. Um, mm. I don't know that it was a very good book, but the fact that I finally <laughs> had something to say meant it, I was able to complete it. I got it done. And, you know, and uh, I was, I think I was in my first year of college when I finished it. And so my plan had been, you know, to at some point show this to my mother. And then, you know, I, I, I built this up in my head. There was going to be this mm. big confrontation. And, <laughs> and of course, what ended up happening is while I was at college, she went in and cleaned my room and found the manuscript <laughs> and read it and very uncharacteristically decided not to challenge me head on. So I, I was home on break and she just mentioned in passing, oh, I read your book. It's pretty good. And I'm like, you read it? And I'm waiting for an explosion. And she just walks out of the room and goes back to whatever she was doing. And I, at first I was furious because I was like, <laughs> I've been denied this, you know, apocalyptic confrontation over my, you know, my break with the church. And, you know, but then a little later I was like, yeah, actually, wow. I feel like I dodged a bullet there. So she knows and she's not mad at the moment and you know (laughs) we'll probably revisit this later but for now i'm good um Mm. and that was that and uh unfortunately that you know i i'm sure we would have revisited later but she didn't have much longer um Mm. she had always had you know health problems she had scleroderma which is a uh i believe an autoimmune disorder um she'd also been in this um bad car accident while I was in high school that had, you know, broken her hip and left her with sort of pain that never left her. So she underwent something like, you know, a dozen surgeries to attempt to correct that. And uh, I think just that many surgical interventions has a toll on your body. So mm. my last semester of college or my, my, my uh, you know, between the September of my last year of college and, and when I came home in January, it was like she aged 10 years. Mm. And I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, mom's getting old. And, and this was funny because my dad was 10 years older than her, but he actually looked more hale than she did at that point. And mm-hmm. uh, nine days after I, I came back to Cornell for my, my last semester of uh, college, uh, I got a knock on my door in my dorm room. And it was a Lutheran pastor from the local church who I did not know personally, but my dad had called them. And she said, yeah, I'm here to you know, tell you your mom's died. And uh, mm-hmm. she had been on, you know, like I say, she was somebody who loved to jump in the car and drive. And she'd been doing that. She'd been uh, out at the P- Pennsylvania house. She'd gone there to like change the light bulbs and, and do stuff. And apparently she just parked the car at the foot of the driveway, which was full of snow and was walking up and just dropped dead. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, mom was not the kind of person who would call you and tell you where she was every minute of the day. She was like, if the, 
it's when the phone rings at two in the morning that you worry. If you don't hear from me, then everything's fine. So dad did not get concerned until about 24 hours later when he didn't hear from her. And then he began to suspect, oh, geez. So he, he grabbed this nun that he knew at the hospital, Sister Mary, and they drove up together to Pennsylvania and found her. And um, mm. it was very odd for me because I, you know, I never saw her dad. Of course, she'd been lying out in, in the snow for mm-hmm. 24 hours. So it was closed casket. So it's like mom just went off on one of her trips and never came back. And mm. uh, it was very hard on my father. But for me, it was sort of, I know this sounds very gruesome, that death, but if you'd heard her stories, she loved to tell these stories about her adventures with wild animals growing up in the jungle. And, you know, she had a very, you know, she, she, she was very fond of statements like, oh, you know, if an alligator comes out of the bushes and bites your leg off, don't just sit there crying, you know, tie it off and start crawling. Don't wait for somebody to come to you. So, so really if, if she had had to pick a death, the idea of, you know, dying out in the middle of the Pennsylvania wilderness and freezing solid, that would have been something she might've picked. That's a very dramatic. The only thing that would have made it better is if like wolves had found her before my father had. So, but we didn't have wolves in Pennsylvania. So, um, and starting at the funeral and after that, I just, my dad opened up a little more and we got a lot closer and, uh, he remarried one more time. He married my mother's best friend, uh, Mm. And he had a happy last few years of his life, and uh, but he got leukemia and uh, died not of the cancer, but of the side effects of chemotherapy. Basically, his, I think they got him into remission, but his immune system was just so taxed by it that he, he faded away. So I got to be there the last 24 hours when he was he was dying. So I got to hold his hand as he went. And again, that was it was difficult, but it was also weirdly fitting because again, it, if you were going to pick one of my parents to die in bed, surrounded by his loved ones, it would have been dad. That was very mm. much a dad way to go, a rough way to go. Whereas the land virus, <laughs> nope, it's going to be, it's going to be something more <laughs> like that. So, so at a, at a fairly young age, I guess I was uh, 25 when my dad passed. Um, wow. I found myself kind of launched on my own into the world. But, you know, the, the way I thought of it was they'd done their job. They'd done their best job of getting me ready for life. And, you know, now I was on my way and I'd, I'd gained enough from both of them that I, you know, my writing was, was on its way. And my, my first novel, Fool on the Hill, I had written as my senior thesis in college. And through an incredible stroke of luck, one of my, one of my professors was the novelist, Alison Lurie, who she, liked my work and encouraged me, you know, when, when you finish this novel, uh, here's my agent in, you know, the address of my agent, uh, in New York, Melanie Jackson, uh, send it to her and Melanie got it and liked my work. And she took me on as a client and, uh, yeah, has been my agent ever since. And, um, I'm, I'm one of the least famous people she represents. Like she's married to Thomas <laughs> Pynchon. So she's got, you know, <laughs> She's this incredible, superpowered, independent agent. She's got an incredible clientele and me. And <laughs> um, she's sort of stuck with me all this time until, you know, now 35 years later, uh, Lovecraft Country, suddenly I'm, I'm you know, uh, an overnight success. And so it's just been an interesting career where um, I was very poor in, in many times, but uh always right right at the point when things would have gotten really bad there would always be some weird windfall or a surprise mm. turn of luck like fool in the hill got translated into german mm. and um 
was actually more popular in Germany than it was here in the United States for a very long time. So that hmm. foreign sales and specifically the German fandom, which, which, you know, my mother would have been so proud of, I'm sure, um, <laughs> kept me afloat until I built up enough of a backlist that I was able to kind of survive uh, on my own. And um, yeah, so that's the, that's the, the short version of how I got from there to here. And mm-hmm. again, it's not that I'm, I, I always hesitate to describe myself as an atheist because atheism to me, you know, implies a positive belief that there's nothing there. And it's more that um, a growing awareness that there's not always a connection between what I believe and, and what, what actually exists in nature or what, you know, what, what is out there. So while I'm mm. perfectly willing to, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly open to being surprised if I, if I die and find out that there is, in fact, an afterlife. Um, well, first of all, I'll be thrilled because I, I kind of <laughs> like being I like being alive. It's been pretty good for me. Um, even even the worst <laughs> moments have been certainly better than any kind of oblivion. Um, so I won't be surprised, but it's more that I know that what I think about it has no effect on or I don't expect what I think about it to have any effect on what is actually going to be there. So I'm, I'm open mm. to being pleasantly surprised and I hope that I am, but it, it doesn't really have anything to do with what I, what I think. Um. <laughs> I'd really like to introduce you to my six-year-old daughter sometime. <laughs> okay. Spe- speak, speaking as someone who's, you know, doing his best to raise his daughter's Lutheran. <laughs> she, she tells me, nearly every day that Jesus isn't real. <laughs> and I don't know why she's so sure about this. I don't know where she got that idea, but she is extremely insistent, you know? <laughs> Some people just, yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, again, I do, I do think of this as a change because there was, there was certainly a point when I was younger when I would have said, well, yes, of course God is real, but I, I, it, it's probably true that there is something temperamental in me that was always there to just sort of, you know, say, well, you know, I, I, I want to believe this stuff, but wait a minute. Part of it is that I, I think as I, you know, like I, I went through a period when I was younger, parapsychology was very big in the seventies too. And I, mm-hmm. I love that. And originally I, I would read these sort of parapsychology ghost hunter stories uncritically because they, mm-hmm. they were, it was really cool. Oh, Borley rectory, you know, and the idea of, you know, all of these, these haunted places. But then I discovered skeptical literature. And I think part of it was it, it just told a more compelling story and one that, mm-hmm. that actually seemed to connect better with evidence that you could verify. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically what it is. <laughs> it's just the, who's got the more compelling story to tell, but, but also mm. this idea that if you can actually test some of this stuff, it, it's really helpful to yeah. sort of decide which, which story is really the best. For sure. Yeah. I've said this on the, on the show before, I think, but um I'm someone who's fascinated by stories of the paranormal, uh, but I'm also, I've been listening to some of your (laughs) Halloween episodes and yeah. (laughs) I'm also someone who's kind of struck by like how they all seem to end in the same anticlimactic way, you know, like I heard these voices in my house and then eventually they stopped or something like that, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, like maybe it's a sampling error. Like maybe the people killed by ghosts aren't here to tell the stories. I don't know, you know, but at the same time, it's like, um, if, if the paranormal exists, it doesn't seem to interact directly with people much at all. <laughs> I mean, it, sh- like- it, sh- it shows up, it spooks you and then it's gone. You know, <laughs> 
I mean, it's sort of like when physicists talk about dark matter, which I, I yeah. gather has a bit more of a, a, a solid <laughs> basis, but I still like you're positing this stuff that apparently doesn't interact with normal matter in most ways. And so how do you know? <laughs> and yeah, that's the thing is it's not that there, you know, it's not that I couldn't think of evidence that would make me believe it's just that mm-hmm. um, the evidence that's actually offered just seems more like the kind of stuff you'd come up with if you were desperate, if you wanted to believe something that you, you couldn't actually prove. And I mean, I, I noticed this too when I started thinking more critically about like parapsychology experiments where they would do things like, you know, to prove telekinesis might be a thing. They built like a giant pachinko machine where you could drop balls down and, you know, they fall into <laughs> random slots at the bottom. And then the idea is they'd have people stare at this and think left or right and then mm-hmm. try and move the balls and make them a statistically, you know, unlikely number of balls land on the right side or the left side. And my thought is, well, if you want to prove whether people can move things with their mind, instead of building this complicated gadget, why don't you just take one ball, <laughs> put it on a table, isolate it from you know ground vibration, and just have people try and make that one ball move? And of course, the reason you don't do that is because if you, you did know that, that they won't. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. instead of doing the the you know the 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 cards, instead of just write down a really long number and have somebody tell you what the number is. Mm-hmm. And either they can do it or they can't. And it's like, if you have to introduce an element of mystery, I can, I can certainly, like, I can certainly come up with a, a storytelling justification for why it has to be this sort of, no, it, it doesn't work that way. It works mm-hmm. in this mysterious way. But yeah, that's the problem is like, that works better in a story where I, I can come up with a better ending than the real life one where, yeah, we have this weird stuff and and these anomalous things that we can't explain, but we can't actually go any further than that. We never get to the point where having proved that telekinesis might be real, we then get to the point where, yes, somebody can move the ball, that that one ball with their mind, it's always going to be, well, the statistical, this, this statistically seems like it's statistically significant. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not as fun. (laughs) So, Yeah. Yeah. I always, um, I always get so annoyed with like star Wars fans who want to nail down the rules about what the force can and can't do. And oh, it's, yeah. it's like, yeah, what you're asking for is stories that are boring and pedantic and predictable. <laughs> I mean, but, again, uh, I'm, I'm fine with the idea, obviously. I mean, yeah. part of, part of, understanding is that there's more to the universe than I'm ever going to know. And again, I'm constantly, you know, there's, there's things where I, I'll have the sort of instant missionary reaction from mom's side of the family. (laughs) "Ah, That's, that's different than what I think. So screw it. And then, you know, I'll have the dad reaction, but like, well, but okay, (laughs) let's think about this a little bit more, like get that, get the no out of your system and then, you Mm -hmm. know, sit back and, and think, you know, is this, is there something here? And so, it, it, it is the case. I'll encounter stuff that I didn't think was true. And it'll turn out, yeah, there's actually evidence for that or the way I, I had thought about it was wrong. So I'm certainly not, you know, averse to changing my mind about things. It's just that it's got to be because there's something there and not just because it would be much more convenient if that were the case. And I've, mm-hmm. I've got a, what I feel like is a fairly sophisticated sense when I stop and think about it for when, when I'm onto something I need to pay attention to. And when it's just like, no, nah, you kind of want that to be true, but I don't think this is it. I don't think we've got the evidence for this. So, hmm. so do you, would you, is there a word you'd use to describe? You said you, you kind of reject the word atheist. Do you identify as an agnostic or? 
mean, I think agnostic is probably the best technical term, although it just sounds so kind of lame, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I also, I, it, it, it refers to something different, but I love the word apostate because that sounds cool. <laughs> and, um, I, I don't know about your, you know, my, my branch of Lutheranism at, at the time I was confirmed, they still had this as part of the ceremony, this, this blood oath where you swore that you would sooner die than, you know, or suffer torment than give up the faith. Hmm. Um, so, which I, I think was a leftover, a holdover from the days of the Reformation. Um, sure, sure. And I, I, you know, so yeah, the idea of, you know, that, that Lutherans took apostasy rather seriously, that, that, you know, so when I left the church, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm a Lutheran apostate. So that sounds kind of, <laughs> kind of cool and rad and punk, but. Um, <laughs> you get a big tattoo on your forehead. <laughs> yeah, but that's just, that's the thing. That's more about being contrarian than, than anything right. helpful. So I think right. agnostic is probably the, the better word um, and, and open to being surprised. I want to circle back real quick to um, mm -hmm. the unpublished novel you were talking about. You talked about how your mom reacted to it. Did you ever get a chance to show it to your dad or? I, you know, that's funny. I, I really should remember that. I don't hmm. think I may have, I'm not sure. Um, I think I did because I, as I recall, um, like one of, one of the things that the, the character in the book um you know, is doing this thing like referring to God as you bastard at one point, just sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, just being, being trying to provoke God into some sort of response. And mm -hmm. my mother was very upset about that when we, we finally got to talking about it. But, mm -hmm. um, and I remember having a discussion with my father about that, whether this was really blasphemous or whether that was just a way a person might reasonably, and you know, or, or I think, I think what I was, what I was trying to get at was whether it was blasphemous to, to describe someone doing that as opposed to doing that, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, mm -hmm. that the, mm -hmm. the, the use mentioned distinction. And um, I, you know, I, I think dad's, dad's view was sort of like, well, you know, official church answer to that question, but yeah, it's blasphemous, even if you're just doing it to describe somebody, but you know, mm. he didn't particularly care. Um, mm. And I don't know if he, if he ever read the whole book or not, but it wasn't, I, I was really more concerned with my mother's reaction. I always assumed my dad would, would deal with it because again, he was not somebody who, his job was to give you advice. If you, if you wanted to know what he believed, he'd tell you what he believed and why. And if mm -hmm. he wanted advice, he'd give it to you, but he, he did not get hung up on whether you would do it because he understood, I think first that people are always free to ignore your advice and there's no point in driving yourself crazy trying to make them do something they don't want to do. Um, mm -hmm. The best you can do is just give them your best argument and let them do with it what they want. So um, I can't say that he would have been, you know, happy to, to, to hear that I was, I was not going to be a practicing Christian, but uh, mm -hmm. ultimately that was my decision. And it didn't mean we couldn't, you know, sit down at the table together and, and still love one another. Um, but where sure. with mom, I think it was going to be, uh, I would probably have been an eternal source of conflict and, you know, mm. and then um, of course I, I, I married a Jewish woman. So I'm sure <laughs> mom would have loved her. That That's the thing, mom. I, I, I don't want to make my mother sound, you know, like a, a draconian figure because <laughs> She also had this weird thing where, where she could one minute, she could be very strict about the rules, but she also understood, you know, she, sometimes you got to break the rules. Like one of her, her, my favorite sayings of hers was like, yes, you know, if you're going to sin, sin, don't be half-assed about it. <laughs> it. 
basically meaning, you know, yes, you should try to follow the rules, but you're human and sometimes you're going to break the rules. And when you do, don't pretend that feeling bad about the fact that you're breaking the rules is going to make it less bad. So mm. just enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy it. Make, make, make your punishment worth whatever you've done. And that I think speaks <laughs> to the fact that she herself was perfectly willing to do, to step outside the boundaries of acceptable Christian practice at times. And, you know, mm. she was a rule breaker as well. It was just, and, and she would, I'm sure very good at defending why she had to do certain things, but <laughs> So she, she could be very mercurial about this sometimes too. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, if she had been around and I I told her, well, I'm going to marry this woman who's Jewish. I'm I'm sure she would have had some things to say about that, but then she would have fiercely loved my wife and and accepted her and, and, you know, God help anybody else who dared speak out of turn about her. So that was mom. And dad was just, you know, kind of more mellow and was like, yeah, you know, you want to be an atheist? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I have to ask, do you, if your mom had lived, do you think there would have been the big conversation, the big confrontation over the book? Um, I think that she and I would have had to come to some kind of understanding because this was, I, I noticed even as I was getting towards the end of college, she was doing like what we would now call empty nest syndrome, where mm-hmm. she and I just seemed to be arguing more. And, and part mm-hmm. of that was her, I think, just being nervous about I'm going to grow up and she's going to somehow lose me. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I started to sort of figure out that, that a lot of the times we would have arguments, sometimes it just wasn't, there was no good way to agree to disagree about certain subjects. There were just certain things I didn't want to get into with her. And mm. I think we would have had to work past that and, and come to some sort of accommodation. So I think there would have been a more general, uh, you know, coming to a more adult relationship, I guess, where, mm. you know, mm-hmm. where I, I just had the right to stand up and say, look, I, I know you, you don't agree with me on this, but we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And I think I was, you know, I was spared that obviously because she, she died right before we would have probably had to start getting into that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's unfortunate that I lost her. Cause I, I, I think about this all the time where, you know, especially now where it would be great if my folks were here and could see, you know, the faith that they had had in me has paid off. I think my mother would have been just really thrilled to death, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm so, I'm sorry she missed that. Mm-hmm. Um, the part of me that is still somewhat lazy is like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not sad to have missed some of the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the difficulty that would have, would have taken to get there. But I, you know, obviously if I could have him back, I would love it. Um, sure. So yeah, it would have been a very different evolution. And of course, you know, I did go through this period after my, my father died as well, where I was really out of my own. That was when I really kind of grew up mm. um, because I'd had a fairly, you know, it, this, a lot of my childhood was fairly sheltered just because I was surrounded by these fairly conservative thinkers. And granted Mm. that was offset somewhat by being a kid in New York city at a time when you did not have to account for your whereabouts. You know, like I was riding the subway Mm -hmm. on my own by the time I was 10. Uh, I was doing things that today would get your parents, you know, arrested for child neglect. (laughs) Um, So it's not like I was not exposed to other ways of thinking. And that obviously played into the way I, I grew up. It wasn't until I was really on my own and, and forced to think for myself entirely that I think I started to really mature. And I think that affected, you can sort of see that in the arc of my writing as well, where my, mm. 
my, my most mature fiction really doesn't come into its own until my early thirties. And mm. that is the period where I, yeah, I'd gone through this period of my parents are gone and now I'm living on my own, figuring out what I want to do with my, you know, how, how else I want to live my life. And um, so, yeah, I'm not sure how things would have been different if one or both of my parents had still been with me. And again, there were things about my father that I would not have learned. He would not have spoken of until after my mom was dead, I think. Uh, so I, I, that's the one thing about her dying when she did that I'm sort of grateful for is I felt like I got to know my dad a lot better than I otherwise might've because my impressions of him were, were filtered through her when I was younger, because she really was the primary you know, caretaker of me as a kid. So it wasn't until she was out of the way and I kind of got to see him more as he really was and realized, Oh, you know, I'm actually take after him more than I realized. So I'm glad for that. Uh, obviously it would have been better if they just both lived a lot longer and I'd had more time to figure this out other ways, but that's the way it happened. Aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? After I, after I left the Christian journey, in college, I sort of gravitated toward liberal progressivism just because it seemed to capture all the good things about Christianity, you know, caring mm. about other people without what I thought of as the bad parts. But then of course uh, it didn't take too long to figure out that actually <laughs> secular philosophies just have their own version of in-group in and out-group. And mm -hmm. I, I guess what I would say, what I ultimately learned is that my, my sympathies tend to lie most, and the people I'm most comfortable with are people who are, tend to be branded as heretics in you know, either, either religious or secular faith, people who mm. ask difficult questions during confirmation class and say stuff that... <laughs> would be a lot easier if you didn't bring it up. And, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, don't necessarily see disagreement as a sign of, of pathology that it's, mm -hmm. you know, just to, yes, they have opinions and yes, they can be opinionated, but they are also honestly curious about people who think differently than they do. And that mm -hmm. too very much played into my writing. So it's like, if I were, a more doctrinaire thinker, I wouldn't even have attempted to write something like Lovecraft Country. And mm. you know, my other, my other, most of my novels have protagonists who are nothing like me or who are, may share certain aspects, but their, their backgrounds and the, the limitations they face and the choices they face are very different from anything I've had to deal with. And mm. I love that stuff. I, mm -hmm. I like getting into that. And, you know, uh, whether you whether other people like my fiction may be predicated on whether you enjoy that sort of thing too. If what you want is something that's going to give you a pat set of answers that you know this is how everyone should think, then I'm probably not your guy. Mm. Um, and if you you know if you if you're uncomfortable when you know you think you know which way the story is going to go, but then characters act more with the kind of contradictions they do in real life rather than the way they do in sort of neatly smooth storytelling, then then there too you you may be unpleasantly surprised when I have characters do things that you, you wouldn't necessarily want heroic characters to do. But mm -hmm. so that's, I think what I've learned is that I'm, I'm most comfortable with the, the, the heretics and the people who aren't afraid to ask questions. I relate to that. <laughs> that's why I do this. Show. I thought you might. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I try to, um, I have three philosophical questions. I ask all my, my guests uh, just to, kind of poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, first of all, Matt, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? 
So you were very nice to provide these three questions in advance. And so I thought I would try <laughs> to cover two of them together by sure. in, a, in a sort of weird rambly way by, by talking about like one of the issues that comes up when you step outside and organize religion is this question of, you know, without the existence of God or some other absolute moral authority, what does morality even mean? Um, mm. And I've been, and I, and I have to say, this is not a question that I, I tend to worry about too much because just, it seems self-evident to me why you need to have a sense of right and wrong, but I understand mm -hmm. why people grapple with it and how sometimes in conversations where atheists are talking about this, they kind of just sort of scoot past that really quickly because they don't really know how to talk about it. Um, so I've been sort of messing around with this riff in my head where I think that one way to understand the meaning of morality for human beings is to start thinking first about the meaning of language. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're social animals, social animals need a way to communicate with each other. And so we've evolved this very useful ability to speak to one another. But there is this puzzle that the, the writers of the Bible were very familiar with, which is why do we have so many languages? Mm. If it's useful to be able to talk to some people, wouldn't it even be more useful to be able to just talk to everybody without mm. you know, any need for translation? So why did that, you know, how did we end up at the Tower of Babel? And I, I think the answer is that, it, you know, even if you believe we're products of intelligent design, in order to create a, uh, a language that would work for all human beings in all conceivable periods of history, what the intelligent designer would have to do first is sit down and come up with a list of every thought that any human being ever in any possible future would need to express and come up with a word for that, mm. which is a pretty tall order, even for an omniscient designer. <laughs> so instead of putting this mother huge dictionary into our brains, uh, what we get instead is a, an open-ended facility for learning languages and modifying them. So your, you know, your parents teach you the rudiments of your vocabulary. They teach you how to speak. And then as you go out into the world and you encounter things you don't have words for, you either make up a new word or find a new use for an old one. And that's very efficient and very useful. But by introducing change into language, by allowing language to evolve, you, things that evolve tend to diverge. So you start off with a group of people speaking a common tongue, but then they migrate to different places and lose touch with each other. And their languages continue to evolve independently. And so over many generations, over a long period of time, these people who used to speak one language end up speaking two mutually incomprehensible ones. And so we end up at Babel, not, not as a punishment, but just you know, as a necessary outcome of the way we speak. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so now we live in a global society and we can all communicate with each other, but now we've got all of these languages and one of the ways we deal with that is this concept of a lingua franca, which is sort of a common tongue that we settle on that, you know, intelligent people can, can or educated people can learn and can use to communicate with people from other, uh, you know, uh, whose native language is different than theirs. You know, the choice of the lingua franca is usually a historical accident. It's like, you know, whoever has got the empire. So, you know, the, the reason English is sort of the lingua franca for much of the world is because of the American and British empires. Mm -hmm. And a person might say to themselves, well, okay, but instead of leaving it to historical accident, why don't we just sit down and um, just look at all the languages we've got and pick the one that is actually objectively the best? Why don't we pick that objectively best language and all learn that one? And I think the answer is that there, there isn't such a thing that, you know, there are obviously constraints on what a language has to be like in order for human beings to use it. But beyond that, I think 
one language is probably pretty good as any other as far as getting the job done. So I don't think mm. nature really takes sides on that. And at this point, I would sort of haul out the gotcha question that um, moral absolutists, a version of the gotcha question that moral absolutists like to use, which is, you know, so Mr. Ruff, you're saying that there's no <laughs> such thing as an objectively best language, then aren't you just saying that language is just a matter of preference? And if language is just a matter of preference, how do I know you're not going to wake up tomorrow and decide to stop speaking English and like start speaking Mandarin? <laughs> how do I know other people aren't going to do this too? And it's just going to result in this complete linguistic chaos. And Chris, when you're speaking about language, this isn't much of a gotcha question because the answer is obvious. Like learning a new language is really hard. Yeah. And it gets harder as you get older. Like there's this mm. brief window when you're a kid um, when you're like a sponge for soaking up information. And if you ever want to be, if you want to be truly multilingual, that's the time to get in on it. Um, and it's unfortunate this is a period of your life when you're really bad at long-term planning. Eventually you get to be an adult and your brain is not so plastic. And while you can still learn new languages, it's harder. And it's particularly hard to learn languages that use sounds that don't exist in your native language because it can be very difficult even to hear those sounds, much less mm. pronounce them. Um, so far from simply being a matter of preference, it's like your language is actually a, your birth language is actually a part of your identity, like mm. in a very physical sense. I mean, it's coded into your brain. Um, and even if you were to forswear speaking your native tongue ever again, I think those physical changes would, would be with you for life. And mm. in another way that it's a part of your identity, it's, obviously it determines who you can talk to. Like if I, if I were to stop speaking English on a whim, well, that would mean I couldn't talk to my wife anymore. I'd be cut off from my friends and, you know, good luck continuing this novel writing career. If I, if I had to stick to a language I picked up on Berlitz five minutes ago. Right. So it's really a core part of who I am. And that's not something I can just cut away for no reason. Um, so even though it would be technically possible for me, if I, you know, gun to my head, take a crash course in Norwegian and having gotten the rudiments saying, okay, I'm never going to utter or write English ever again. I could do that, but I won't. And you know, perfectly well that I won't, and nobody else is going to do it either. Um, and I'm sorry to ramble about this, but, but I think basically everything I just said about language is probably also true of morality because mm. of course the other thing, social animals need is a, a set of rules of behavior of right and wrong. And not just like an abstract set of rules, but a deeply felt set of rules that you, you cannot just violate on a whim that you're, you mm. know, where if you do something that you believe is wrong, you can feel a sense of shame and guilt so deep that you might actually kill yourself rather than continue to live with it. Um, mm. And again, just like with language, it'd be wicked useful if, if all human beings shared the same moral language. Mm. But to create that, the intelligent designer would first have to sit down and create a list of every moral question and ethical dilemma that human beings might ever potentially face in any conceivable future and, and give them a ruling on that. And again, I just think that's a really tall order. So what we get instead is this facility for learning morality and then modifying it when necessary. Hmm. And just as with language, you know, unfortunately, these things that, that can change can also diverge. And so we end up once again at the Tower of Babel, but this time with concepts of right and wrong rather than language. Mm. Mm. 
And this is where the, the analogy breaks down a little bit because of course the, the moral code you follow has a much bigger impact, I think, on the society you end up living in. You know, it's easy to imagine two cultures, one speaks English, one speaks German, but otherwise they're pretty much the same. Leaving aside the historical question of how that would happen. Mm. But if you have, you know, one society organized along, say, Nazi principles and another one organized <laughs> along universal rights and you know, the rights of, of human beings, those societies are not going to be very similar at all, even if they speak the same language, the same, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so this urge to find a, a common morality, a lingua franca, is even more urgent in the case of morality than it is in the case of spoken language. And it's understandable why people would want to believe that there really is an answer out there, that there's either an absolute moral authority, a God who can give us the answers, or failing that, some sort of abstract principle in nature, objective principle in nature that we could just, you know, if we just think hard enough, we'll figure it out and we'll be able to mm. prove that this is the way we all should live. Mm. And maybe that's true, but I would like to suggest that it's possible that, you know, when we make moral statements, when I say, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself, you know, murder is wrong, Nazis are evil, what I'm doing is, is not speaking for God and not making reference to some objective moral principle in nature. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm telling you who I am. I am mm. sharing my identity with you through my moral language. Mm. And to the extent that I'm being honest, um, I'm also telling you what you can expect from me today and tomorrow, because you know, just as with the language I speak, I think moral language is not just a preference. It's, it's a core part of your identity, and, and it's not something you can just cast aside on a whim. You can change it when you have reason to. You can, you can certainly react to new novel situations, but you're always going to have that native morality in you somewhere, and it's going to color and, and accent whatever new beliefs you have. And again, this is not something you're going to do casually because it's just too important to you. And, um, and the reason I think this matters is because the other thing, of course, is that, you know, just because you eliminate God from the world, it, it, it doesn't mean you're, you're, you're not going to make judgments about other people. That's another thing that, that I think moral absolutists sometimes claim is, well, you know, aren't you saying that you just have to tolerate everybody that you can't make judgments? It's like, no, that that's like saying that if you don't agree that there's a best language, you can't talk to people anymore. It's like mm. the whole point of having morality is that you have to make judgments and this is how we do it. Mm. Um, and sometimes the only judgment you have, something is so you know, inimical to the things you value that you're going to have to fight. And mm. uh, violence is sometimes unavoidable. But if you recognize that this is, this is identity, this is part of who we are, um, it allows you to be a little more intelligent in deciding how to deal with people who believe things that you don't. Because when you encounter someone whose who's sense of morality, whose way of looking at the world is just fundamentally different from your own, you can at least know that they're not doing that just to be perverse. They're not trying mm. to piss you off. It's not <laughs> like, it's like when I'm going down the street and I try to ask somebody a question and they, they don't understand English and they respond in some language that I can't even identify. They're not doing that to be mean. Mm -hmm. they're doing that because they're human hmm. and it's, it's a, an eradicable part of human nature that we just see things differently. We speak differently. And if you know that that's just, it's not, it's not a mistake. It's, it's hmm. a natural outgrowth of who we are. Then 
at least some of the time you don't have to have a fight and you hmm. can try to, you know, at least understand where people were coming are coming from. Even if, even if ultimately you've, you've got to, you got to stand, you put a put your foot down and fight them. Hmm. So, um, that's my, I'm sorry, that's my <laughs> rambly riff on this. I need to write this down at some point, but I've been, this is the kind of thing I do when I'm talking to myself. I think stuff like this. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the language morality analogy is actually really fascinating. And I've never heard anyone put it that way. And I'm going to have to think long and hard about that now. So thank you for giving me that to think. No, think sure. About. Yeah, I, um, I need to write this down before I you know, get hit by a car or something. <laughs> I'm curious. Have you have you read any Jonathan Haidt? No, no. Okay, he's a, a philosopher. Uh, well, he's a psychologist, I guess. More moral psychology is how he describes his um, field. Um, he's a, he's an atheist. Um, what was his his big book? Uh, big bestseller was called The Righteous Mind. Um, I feel like it got a lot of press, like yeah, five years ago or so. But I guess okay. I guess he missed it. Um, Anyway, his his the whole his like whole body of work is about the um, psychological and social foundations of morality. Um, so you might find him really interesting. Um, I think it's his catchphrase from that he uses in the Righteous Mind is that morality binds and it blinds. Um, and that is it is useful for binding cultures together but it also blinds them to the moral concerns of external cultures or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I think, you know, dovetails with what you were saying. You, I'd be interested to hear what you thought of his, his work. If you ever get a chance to check him out. Yeah, I'll, so. I'll, I'll put it on my, I'll put it on my to be read list. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Before we uh, wrap up, do you want to tell listeners where they can find you, where they can find your work? So the, the main thing you can, you can just search for my website and the uh, it's by mattruff.com B Y as in a byline uh, mattruff.com. And um, the reason it's that and not mattruff.com is that I didn't listen to my mother-in-law when she told me to, to grab my, uh, my uh, URL when I had the chance, because I thought <laughs> how many Matt Ruffs can there possibly be? <laughs> and it turns out at least one other. <laughs> so <laughs> So the other guy is, uh, yeah, I, I think he's a, he's a computer programmer who's a, a Christian. So he periodically gets my emails, but no, mine is by And um, there it's got links to stuff about all my novels and um, other, other things. And so that's, that's where you can find me. And I, I spent way too much time on Twitter as well, but I mostly just try to stay out of fights there. <laughs> And yeah, as someone who discovered there are many Luke Carringtons in the world. Um, one That's of less whom, surprising to me. Yeah. <laughs> At least one of whom is a porn star. Um, ah. So <laughs> that's why I use the middle initial. Um, but yes, I, I can relate. Um, all right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington, not Luke Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington, or just go to my website, which is LukeTHarrington.com. I will see you next time. I was really struck by uh, what Matt told me about 
morality and language, I honestly think it's maybe even more profound than he realized. Um, Because when you think about it, how often do we judge someone for their language, right? You, You walk into a room and start talking with a Southern accent half the people in the room are immediately going to assume you're dumb, uneducated, whatever. You know, you uh, walk into the room, start speaking Spanish (laughs) or whatever. Half the people in the room are going to automatically assume you're um, an illegal immigrant or something. Um, and I, you know, I know someone's going to listen to this and say, well, those two things aren't at all the same. Well, obviously they're not the same, but they are similar in certain ways. You know, there are obviously plenty of people with Southern accents who are intelligent and well-educated. There are obviously plenty of um, Spanish speakers who are here perfectly legally, Um And the point is not whether those two assumptions are morally equivalent or whatever. The point is that we tend to judge people for who they are. Um, And I think think Matt was really on to something when he said, you know, when I make a moral... Uh, pronouncement. I'm just telling you who I am. Um, now, obviously, I don't think that that's all it is, but I think it's accurate. Um, and I think it explains a lot about where the public discourse is right now. Um, because I think we're in kind of a moral babble, uh, if you'll forgive the expression. Um, Everybody is speaking a different moral language and nobody understands each other, you know? Um, There's a leftist uh, subreddit I hang out on occasionally um, and they spend most of their time, you know, making fun of progressives now. (laughs) If you're on the right, you probably don't even know there's a difference between leftists and progressives. But um, the truth is they hate each other and only interact when it's politically convenient to do so. Um, Which, you know, if you didn't know that, like, we're that much more fragmented than you realized. Um, But yeah, someone on this leftist board made a post that linked to a post on a progressive board um, where they were talking about I guess Lindsay Ellis is leaving Twitter. It doesn't matter what they were talking about. Uh, you can look that up if you really care. But um, yeah, half the posts on this leftist board were like, what are these people even talking about? Like, <laughs> I don't understand what they're so upset about. I don't understand half the words they're using. Um, and that, you know, that's pretty typical. Um, we're not speaking the same moral language and we don't understand each other and we don't care to understand each other because we've already judged each other as immoral. Um, I'm not saying anything particularly new or profound there, um, but I I do think that uh, Matt's analogy sheds light on it in a way 
I hadn't considered before. Um, and obviously, since the goal of this podcast is to fix all the world's problems, uh, that's what we do here. And we're, we're almost there, I think. We are. Uh, <laughs> I think there's, there's just one or two problems left that this podcast has not solved. Um, but no, seriously, I, I think there's something to be said for considering that when someone expresses a moral opinion to you, they are just telling you who they are, where they come from, what their experience has been in life. So maybe keep that in mind as you interact with other people, you know, that maybe if they say something that is completely odious to you, just consider the possibility that it actually makes perfect moral sense to them and that all they're doing is telling you who they are. Um, now, that obviously doesn't solve all the problems. <laughs> there are, like, people argue about morality because there are serious moral concerns in the world. Um, and simply holding hands and singing kumbaya isn't the solution to all or even most of them. But neither is cutting people off, shouting them down, etc. Um, so I don't know, just consider that, I guess. Um, before we wrap up here, I have an announcement to make, which is the next episode, which will be uh, season two, episode 20, is going to be the season finale, um, and we're going to do something a little bit, a little bit different. Um, Blake Collier, who I mentioned earlier, he's been on the show once before. Uh, he's going to come on and interview me um, about what I've learned from this project so far. Um, and we are crowdsourcing questions. Um, so if you have a question, a specific question to ask me about. Uh, what I've learned from the show or really like anything else, like why I do the show, um, that sort of thing. Um, please send it in. Uh, deadline for that is going to be probably noon on April 11th. Um, so you can email it to me at luke.t.harrington at gmail.com. Or email it to Blake at Blake I. Collier, that's C-O-L-L-I-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, or else you can tweet it at me. I'm on Twitter, at Luke T. Harrington. Or, you know, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, all those other places as well. But, yeah, uh, if you have something you'd like me to answer, send it my way. Um, that's it for this week. If you are enjoying the show, please take a second to rate it, review it on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps. Uh, if you want to support me financially, this is a listener-supported podcast. I have a um, Ko-Fi set up. That's ko-fi.com slash change my mind, where you can toss a coin to your podcaster, O Valley of Plenty. Um, if you don't want to give me money for nothing, there is a book you can buy 
My latest book is called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed, uh, available from HarperCollins at all fine publishers, uh, put out by a Christian publisher, written with a general audience in mind, just um, anyone who wants to learn more about the Bible. Anyway, I would like to thank Matt for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. Always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I want to thank Jonathan Clausen for editing the show. He does good work. Um, I would like to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. They have many other great podcasts, which you can find at ravencreeksc.com. And finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. I'm Luke G. Harrington. Please don't be afraid to change your mind.